Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the criminal trial stemming from the tragic death of Ahmad Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by three white men, Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, and was eventually shot to death by one of those men, Travis McMichael. On this special bonus episode, we are going to examine two significant developments in court on Friday, November 19th. We will listen to Kevin Goff, defense attorney for William Roddy Bryan, argue his motion for a mistrial based on inherent prejudice, during which he accused the, quote, woke mob, end quote, outside the courtroom of engaging in a, quote, 21st century lynching, end quote. We will also listen to arguments surrounding Judge Timothy Walmsley's decision to give a charging instruction to the jury regarding Georgia's citizen's arrest law, a decision which an attorney for one of the defendants said would be, quote, gutting, end quote, their defense, and would be, quote, directing a verdict for the state, end quote. That's coming up after the break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On Friday morning, Kevin Goff rose to address Judge Walmsley. Goff, who previously made national news for objecting to the presence of two black pastors in the courtroom at the invitation of Ahmaud Arbery's family, began his latest argument for a mistrial. Mr. Goff, I see you filed another motion for mistrial. A motion today. We're filing this motion for mistrial based on inherent prejudice. I have recounted, uh, incorporated in all the previous issues that have been brought to the court's attention. I have added uh, information, I believe, since the last time we addressed the court on the related motion. Uh, And I have also added in a couple more articles relevant to this matter. And I have attached a photograph that I took yesterday. I think that's Exhibit 1 of what the demonstration looks like, looked like yesterday on the lunch break. Uh, from the the steps at the top of the foyer to this courtroom, Your Honor. Uh, This is an event that is literally, literally at the courthouse door with more people than I could count outside. We have police barricades, but even the barricades themselves barely go past the flagpoles. Your Honor, in in the attached articles, it's two and three. We've got multiple Black Voters Matter signs outside. In the uh, next article, we have the Black Pastors Matter sign outside the courthouse in an article about the same event. There's a lot more going on here than ministry. This is advocacy, advocacy against our client, and it's troubling. It's pretty clear that pretty much everybody in the, in the jury box, which is depending on the time, nine or ten out of the twelve, have an unobstructed view of the gallery in this case. Now, there aren't a lot of cases on, on this issue. And the Supreme Court itself, although it's given an indication, 
several of the justices on the First Amendment issues, they are technically open. So it's not that I don't appreciate the struggle that the court has in dealing with all this, but we have several jurors who would seem to be subject to influence or intimidation just by the comments that were made during the jury selection process. And particularly, Your Honor, we have an issue with Juror 380 at this point. I don't know what to do about it. Well, I've read the motion. I've seen the facts in there. You don't need to go over it. Then I won't. But I have filed the motion for the record. I stand on the argument that was presented. I would ask the court to grant a mistrial of this case based on the inherent prejudice to Mr. Bryant. From the remaining defendants. Jason Sheffield weighed in on behalf of Travis McMichael. Yeah, I think what we were just discussing, Your Honor, is that the court has made us aware that you're checking in with the jurors, and you're doing that regularly. Obviously, you can't do that today. But by Monday, we would hope that the court would again check in with the jurors to make sure that nothing has happened over the weekend where they may have learned about this, got notified about this, and feel a certain way about it by simply reminding them to talk with you should they have seen, heard, or gotten some information. And at that time, if the court reports back, then we might have something to talk about. Franklin Hogue responded on behalf of Greg McMichael. Your Honor, on behalf of Greg McMichael, we take a similar position just expressed on behalf of Travis McMichael. Our position is that the First Amendment assembly of these people to say what they wish to say is nearly sacrosanct. We have no issue with it at all. Our concern, as just expressed by both counsel for Mr. Travis McMichael and Ronnie Bryan, is whether it is having any influence on our jury. And right now, I don't know if it has or hasn't. I take it that we're depending upon the jurors to self-report each day based on the court's instructions to them each evening. I hope that's sufficient. But if after the verdict comes in, if there is a verdict, and we find out that jurors were exposed and didn't report it, it could create problems then on appeal from any conviction. But right now, we don't have any facts upon which to base the motion for mistrial based on jurors being influenced by the public, though it does concern us. So the balance between their freedom to say what they wish, which we respect, and our right to a fair and impartial jury, uninfluenced by outside forces, is what's at stake here. And again, we just depend on the court's authority to inquire of them whether they have been exposed and influenced in any way by anything that's going on outside this courtroom. Laura Hogue added this on behalf of Greg McMichael. May I add one more question? Yesterday was the first day where there was, really the first and only day, where there was a larger crowd and full horns. The idea that a juror could hear that during deliberations is of great concern to us. And so we are perhaps inquiring, and it doesn't have to be done here in open court, that the court also is aware that if those sounds could come into the courthouse, that they'd be prohibited. 
Judge Walmsley addressed Laura Hogue's request. So I'm not going to say where the jury deliberation room is, uh, and because I think that just creates the possibility that um, folks could try to figure out where in the courthouse uh, would be appropriate. I will tell you that uh, whatever was going on outside yesterday, and I think you're right, yesterday was um, a significantly larger crowd than we've seen most days. Uh, I don't recall any disruption in the courtroom itself. Uh, where I was uh, for the day yesterday, uh, I did not hear what was going on. I'll make sure that we check and make sure that um, there isn't any outside influence um, that is uh, or could potentially affect the jurors during deliberations. I think that's an appropriate step, and I'll, I'll go ahead and do that uh, from the state. Prosecutor Linda Dunikowski rose to respond to Kevin Goff's motion. Thank you, Judge. We ask that you deny Mr. Goff's motion for mistrial. There's absolutely no evidence here that the jurors have been influenced in any way by the first and only larger crowd that came yesterday. Um, no evidence that they even knew it was out there. Um, no evidence that they have been intimidated or influenced in any way. Mr. Goff then says witnesses are subject to intimidation as well. Um, no evidence has been presented of the witnesses coming into this courtroom having been intimidated in any way, shape, or form. And then he brought up the court itself and intimated that the court might have been influenced by all of this. I object to that. The mischaracterization of the motion. It's on page six. Yes, I'm aware I wrote it this morning. It doesn't, it doesn't say that. It says that the concern is that people are attempting to influence the presiding judge. That's not saying that the judge is being influenced. But I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that when I have the last word. Your Honor, Mr. Goff is a brilliant lawyer. These briefs that he has filed are detailed, and he has filed a ton of pretrial briefs that the state has had to respond to. He is very, very smart. He is very, very calculating, and he's a good lawyer. Because on November 12th, he stood up in this courtroom, knowing full well he was on television, and made comments about Al Sharpton, and then Black Pastors, and Colonel Sanders, all knowing full well it was being broadcast on television. That was not ineffective assistance of counsel by any stretch of the imagination. That was strategic. He got the response he wanted because he has filed a motion a day based on a continued drumbeat of, well, see, people are coming and people are responding, but they're responding to what he did. They're responding to what he strategically, knowingly, intelligently did so that there would be a response so that he could then complain of it. That is good lawyering right there because now, He's motioned for a mistrial based on something that he caused. You cannot insert reversible error into the case yourself. You can't go ahead and do something and they go, oh, well, it's reversible error when you're the one who did it. But he is attempting to go ahead and do that, which, by the way, once again, not ineffective assistance of counsel, brilliant lawyering, and we ask that you deny his motion for mistrial. Of all the things I've been called, all around the world of the last month. I don't think brilliant was any of them. But let's let's take this up, Your Honor. The motion was legitimate. I didn't ask for anything that wasn't done in federal court 30 years ago. 
because it was intuitively obvious then that it's a problem. It's intuitively obvious today that it's a problem, and it has been. The idea that a lawyer standing up to defend his client with appropriate motions made in a courtroom somehow can waive the client's rights by having raised the issue, that's a troubling concept, Your Honor. And let's be clear. This motion is not a motion to recuse. We have never filed a motion to recuse in this case. We've never even suggested that the court should do so. We've asked all the court officers in this case to disclose any basis that might arise, and we assume that when we don't receive information that there's nothing to discuss. That's not the issue. The issue is the attempt of people in the media or people using the media, particularly people that are associated with the Arbery family or their lawyers, whoever it's coming from, however it's coming, there is pressure being exerted on these jurors. There's pressure, consciously or unconsciously, being put on witnesses. There's pressure, conscious or unconscious, being placed on this court. That is the problem. It doesn't matter whether the jurors are being influenced. It doesn't matter whether the court is being influenced. It doesn't matter necessarily that the witnesses are being influenced. But it does raise serious questions about the propriety of the proceedings and the integrity of the process itself. It is unfortunate that this case raises in a way that maybe hasn't come up before. With the activities of third parties, now I'm not saying that the state had no role in any of the stuff that's going on in the media frenzy of the GBI from the beginning of this case, but obviously much of what's happened is the result of third party activity in this case, spectator activity, for lack of a better phrase. The state's fundamentally mistaken, and I think the court is not giving full credit to the argument that's being made here. Yes, if there's actual prejudice here, if the jurors are all standing up saying they can't be fair, if Your Honor were to stand up saying you couldn't be fair, if a witness were to stand up saying I can't feel like I can tell the truth, that would be actual prejudice, and we wouldn't be having this discussion. The court would, on its own, sua sponte, be taking appropriate action to ensure the rights of these defendants. I have no doubt about that. The question here is inherent prejudice. That does not require any affirmative activity in the gallery. It doesn't require any affirmative statements of jurors or anybody else. The argument is that it is inherent prejudice. Now, this is not 1915. This is not 1923. There are not thousands of people outside with pitchforks in baseball bats, but I would respectfully submit to the court that this is the 21st century equivalent. This case has been infected by things that have nothing to do with the guilt or innocence of these defendants, largely without the, as far as I can tell, it's not like the state is out there during this trial giving press conferences or something, but still, third parties are influenced in this case. They've been doing it from the gallery in this courtroom. They've been doing it outside. This is what a public lynching looks like in the 21st century, with all due respect. They don't have to have 10,000 people outside. They don't have to have 100,000 people outside. Perception is reality. We have sealed these jurors off. We hope we have. We have sealed them off, and it doesn't matter how many people are outside. It doesn't how violent they appear to be. It doesn't take much, and you've got witnesses, and you've got jurors who are worried about their careers and their livelihoods when this case is over, and they're aware of what's going on. 
They certainly were aware of it before they got here. They talked about it during the voir dire process. Just because they haven't put a, a gallery up, uh, uh, they haven't put a podium up outside with, with a hangman's noose on it, doesn't mean that this isn't a trial, despite the best efforts of this court. This isn't a trial that's been infected by mob violence of a woke left mob. And whether people realize that they participated in that or not, I'd like to think that the vast majority of the people outside this courthouse really have no interest in anything but justice. I, I want to believe that. I, from a lot of the people I know out there, I think that's true. But the perception is the reality. And the media have fed that perception and created a reality, whether it's true or not, just like other people have created a false narrative. And the falsity of that narrative has been made very apparent through the trial of this case. That becomes the reality. This is what a mob-dominated trial looks like in the 21st century. And we're asking for the mystery. All right. The uh, court, having heard from the move-in, as well as the parties, uh, denies the motion for mistrial. Goff's statement that, quote, this is what a public lynching looks like in the 21st century, end quote, again drew national media attention, with many pointing out the absurdity of Goff's use of a racially charged expression that others have used to describe the acts against Mr. Arbery by Mr. Goff's client and his co-defendants. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Most of November 19th was spent by the lawyers and the judge working through the judge's charging instructions to the jury. While many important points were discussed, by far the most contentious and significant was the discussion around Judge Walmsley's instructions regarding Georgia's now-repealed citizen's arrest law. The law is two sentences long and reads as follows. A private person may arrest an offender if the offense is committed in his presence or within his immediate knowledge. If the offense is a felony and the offender is escaping or attempting to escape, a private person may arrest him upon reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. Franklin Hogue, on behalf of defendant Greg McMichael, offered this argument. Here's the important distinction between sentence one and sentence two. And, and I've read every single case in Georgia on citizen's arrest, and this is clearly the case. Sentence one applies to both misdemeanors and felonies, but says those must have occurred in the, in the presence or within the immediate knowledge of the citizen conducting the arrest. And then there's plenty of cases, usually in the context of store owners and store managers, talking about what constitutes presence and immediate knowledge, applicable to both misdemeanors and felonies. I have not mentioned that sentence in opening statement. I don't think that we're going to argue that on the facts of this case. The second sentence, however, concerns only felonies, 
and it concerns the reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion for the citizen to think that the felon is escaping or attempting to escape from the commission of a previously committed felony. So it does not have to be contemporaneous as it does in sentence one. All of the sentence one cases do require a contemporaneous event near in time to the pursuit by the citizen to apprehend the person, either in the act itself while putting the item in his pocket or after he's left the store and the alarm's gone off and they chase him through the parking lot. Plenty of cases like that. But the second sentence does not require contemporaneity with the felony. It only requires a reasonable and probable grounds to suspect that the fleeing person that you're now pursuing is fleeing from capture for a previously committed felony. In our case, the felony that we can reasonably suspect has possibly occurred three months prior to the fleeing that we witnessed. Not that day. We don't have to believe that Ahmaud Arbery committed a felony on February 23, 2020 to come under the second sentence of the citizen's arrest statute. It would be similar to, say, for example, you have encountered a burglar in your home. You got him on camera. You were home and saw him. You have a clear identification of him. And then two weeks later, you're filling your car with gas at the gas station, and there he is. You see him, and you recognize him. He recognizes you, and you say, hey, you're the guy that was in my house, and he turns and runs. Second sentence of the now repealed statute would authorize that citizen to pursue the fleeing felon of whom he has reasonable and probable grounds to suspect has committed a felony two weeks prior in my house when I saw him there committing burglary or whatever else he may have been committing. So I think it's confused, and it's incorrect, and it's not the law to state that both sentences require presence and immediate knowledge and contemporaneity with the crime. That is not the law. That is not the case. Prosecutor Linda Dunikowski rose to rebut Mr. Hogue for the state. The state disagrees with this first sentence, second sentence distinction that they're making. The first sentence applies to misdemeanors and felonies. The only time the second sentence applies is when someone's escaping. You have to also be escaping. So the first sentence does apply to misdemeanors, and it applies to felonies. And I think Mr. Hogue even stated that and made that very, very clear. So this weird distinction where it only applies to misdemeanors, that is not at all true. You have to, if it's a felony and the person's escaping, then you get to do these other things. Then you can go ahead and chase them down. You can't chase down necessarily someone who's committed a misdemeanor, but you can chase somebody down if they're escaping. So that's really the distinction here between the first sentence and the second sentence. Not that the first sentence is only on misdemeanors. It's misdemeanors and felonies. The second part applies when you're escaping. Thank you.
After a break, Judge Walmsley returned with his decision. We are discussing on page 19, the contemporaneously language. Um, so the, tell you how the court's gonna charge this. I, I don't read the statute the same way as the defense. There's a, um, I read into the statute. Uh, the first line addresses both felonies and misdemeanors. The second, say line, second sentence, narrows that then down to felonies. It doesn't discount misdemeanors. It just says in the case of felonies, if there's an escape going on, then the arrest can be effectuated. The way I read that is if it's a misdemeanor, the guy can be arrested, guy, gal, whoever it is, can be arrested uh, by whoever is effectuating the citizen's arrest. But if they run, then you can't go chasing after misdemeanors. In the case of a felony, you can. And um, a person who is chasing somebody who's escaping on a felony uh, that is um, justified upon reasonable and probable grounds for suspicion can effectuate the arrest. So the charge that I am going to provide, I'm going to amend a little bit from the state's language, and that is that a private citizen's warrantless arrest must occur immediately after the perpetration of the offense or in the case of a felony during the escape. If the observer fails to make an arrest immediately after the commission of the offense or during escape in the case of a felony, his power to do so is extinguished. That's what the court intends to charge. I understand there's an exception from the, uh, the defendants. A composed but clearly alarmed Bob Rubin rose on behalf of Travis McMichael to respond to the judge's decision. Judge, if you charge the jury the way you're, you're contemplating, you are directing a verdict for the state. You are, and you are rendering the second sentence in which it describes reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion meaningless. It's in there, presumably, for a purpose. It's a different burden than immediate knowledge or presence. And so I would, I would urge the court to reconsider and, and eliminate this, let the state argue what they're gonna argue. We have built this whole case around the probable cause, the second sentence, last phrase, that Travis McMichael and Greg McMichael had on February 23rd for events that happened previously. And you are gutting all of it if you give this particular charge. Franklin Hogue then asked if he could lay out the defense arguments in writing for the judge. May, may I ask, Your Honor, if uh, and it were Friday at 2.30, if over the weekend we were able to email to you or your staff uh, a full, complete, with citations argument for, for what position we're arguing for here that you this contemporaneity of the offense for which you are fleeing and being chased. Judge Walmsley offered this response. Well, let me do this. This is what I intend to charge. I'm not going to reopen all of the charges. I understand the, the significance of the charge that is presented. Uh, I will, if I'm provided something, at least on a timely basis over the weekend, where I can digest and the state then have an opportunity to digest and respond. Um, this charge, I will remain, um, it, it, the intent is as I've described, but if I'm provided different authority than I've already been provided, I will go ahead and reconsider upon the presentation of um, any additional authority that may come. 
So on Monday, we will know if this critically significant phrasing regarding the Georgia citizen's arrest law will remain a part of the judge's charge. Joining us now to discuss the debate over the charging instructions is Georgetown law professor, MSNBC analyst, and one of the nation's most frequently consulted scholars on issues of race and criminal justice, Paul Butler. Paul Butler, thanks for popping into this special jury duty podcast. We had a hearing yesterday about jury instructions, and the lawyers, particularly the defense lawyers, argued that one particular part of the judge's proposed jury instructions was essentially debilitating to their case. Can you talk about what was going on in that argument? We know that at no point during the encounter between the defendants and Mr. Arbery did they tell him that he was under arrest. In fact, Travis McMichael testified that he never even told Mr. Arbery why he was stopping him or what he wanted to talk about. Citizen arrest laws are quite controversial because they give police power to private citizens and Typically, it's the government, it's the state that has a monopoly on bringing people to criminal justice, including by arresting people. So these laws are subject to interpretation and revision and limitation by courts. And if the case law in Georgia, if the legal precedent places these limitations on when private citizens can arrest other private citizens... That is the law. And if what these defendants did is inconsistent with that law, then the defendants must bear the consequences. And the evidence suggests that nothing was ever taken from the construction site itself. And when we think about trial advocacy and just how words matter, I think it was a canny decision by the prosecutor to refer to the property as an open construction site as opposed to a home. And the property owner testified that stuff had been taken from his boat in the water near the construction site, but as far as he knew, nothing had been taken ever from the construction site itself. So not only was there no probable cause to arrest Mr. Arbery for the burglary that the defendants claimed they suspected him of, There certainly wasn't any evidence that Mr. Arbery had stolen anything out of the house that day. Even the stuff that was taken from the boat happened weeks before. So if the jury is instructed that the defendants are only legally justified in making a citizen's arrest if the crime just went down or if they're in hot pursuit of a criminal who just committed an act, that's not even their story. That's not even what they're saying. So it's most relevant to the false imprisonment charge. It may also have some bearing on the self-defense claim because under the law, if you are the aggressor, if you start the fight, you can't claim self-defense. And if in fact the defendants didn't have any legal justification to stop Mr. Arbery, and yet as the evidence showed, they chased him, hunted him down, the fact that there wasn't a legal reason to do that could help the jury find that they started the fight, that they were the aggressors. They said it wasn't a command. It was a request that Mr. Arbery stop, that Mr. Arbery was under no legal obligation 
to do that. He legally was entitled to do just what he did, which was to keep jogging. And when the defendants tried to capture him, those defendants are the folks who provoked this tragedy. Paul Butler, thanks again, as always, for being with us. It's always a pleasure, Kerry. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. This episode was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Trial Audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery.